Good morning. I want to especially welcome visitors to our church today. Um, this is a pretty cool church, and we're really glad to have you here, especially that you want to invest some time with us and those of you that regularly attend. It's really great to see you. Um, if you need a Bible, as soon as the guys are done doing the offering, they'll walk down the aisle with Bibles. If you need one, raise your hand. If you want to keep it, take it home with you. And uh, I've been asked to share lesson number five of this series called the Super Mega Epic Summer. And as uh, Matt said, my name is Mike Taylor. And I'm not seeing any slides yet, so hopefully... Yeah, there they go. I don't see anything down here, just so you know. Um... And my wife and I have been attending, been a part of the Mission Point family for the last two years. Uh, Meyer and I have been married. This November will be 35 years. I know. You look at me and you say, impossible, right? You look at her, you'd say impossible. She's pretty hot. 27 years of ministry uh, in Central Africa. This was one of the first pictures we took of our family uh, Rach and Becca went with us. I'm privileged this morning to have, I think, all my kids here today, son-in-laws, grandkids. It's pretty cool. And we began working with a really cool little ministry called Three Strands, and those strands stand for compassion, competence, Christ-focused health care, and some of the hardest places on the planet, Central Africa and Haiti. Um, <clears throat> over the past weeks, you've heard some pretty phenomenal quotes if you've been here. And I just wanted to remind you of those quotes. Little did I know that I would be standing before you today after our country had suffered yet again another horrible week. Senseless deaths. You think of Bangladesh, now the death toll is 300 people. I don't know anybody in Bangladesh. During the Muslims' most holy month, the place where the Muhammad, the prophet, is supposedly buried, a bomb went off. Can you imagine? And yet, as we've been talking about this super mega epic series, the thing that I remember the most being told repeatedly from our pastors has been, we need to be praying that God would do great things, and if God asks us to do something great, be willing to do it. Matt asked us to take a step into the water. When you look back at the children of Israel who had to cross the Jordan, somebody had to put their feet in the water first during the flood stages for those waters to stop. Kondo said to us four weeks ago, he believes that June and July will place Mission Point on a new trajectory. I mean, this is a, this is a powerful time in the life of our church. But the quote that I heard the most that has really touched me the most has been, be a part of the greatest story ever told. And it's the story of the redemption of life in Jesus Christ. And the, the cool thing is, is that story is ongoing, and you and I can be a part of that story. So uh, as I was preparing for the message, I went back and visited our mission statement, and I looked at our website. And if you go to our website, the mission statement says that this church, this body of believers, we exist. The reason we get up every day, the reason we breathe, the reason you came here this morning is to invite everyone, everywhere, to life in Christ, to be a part of this story. I thought to myself, Myra and I were not around when this happened, when this was crafted. But when you read that, it is beautifully crafted. It says 
this church lives and breathes to invite people in this community, around the world, to life in Christ. So thinking about everyone everywhere, I thought about our county. We have 77,000 people. How many of those people are unchurched? Somebody tell me. How many? 50,000. So that tells me you've heard Kondo and Matt say that numerous times, just like I have. That's what we hear. How many people are on the earth today? Over 7 billion. How many Americans? 319 million. And guess what? We can become overwhelmed with those huge numbers. 50,000, frankly, overwhelms me. But one person does not. And I think that's really the crux of what I want to share today, is I think as we look at this super mega epic series and God's asking us to do big things, I think he's asking us all to do one thing. And that is to take this story, share it with one person. So here's what I was asked to do. I was asked, and I have the, the email here that Kondo wrote to me, and he says, I want you to share best hope sharing practices. What's the, what's the way that's going to give people the best hope of seeing people come to know Christ as a result of their sharing? What nuggets would you leave, and he said in here, for Sophia, because he knows Sophia, and she's our granddaughter. What would you and Myra leave with her? Turn turn seven this coming Saturday. And then the final one was, how would you be gospel deliberate? How have you and Myra been gospel deliberate? I want to tell you that everything you hear this morning is a compilation of my thoughts and Myra's together. We've talked a lot about this. And everything I say is a result of our ministry together. I believe that my response boils down to this image right here. Hospitality plus compassion gives you the opportunity to share this great story with people. This is something that everyone can do to impact a life. But in order for us to really, really grasp this concept, we have to have a deep understanding of the critical nature of the word compassion. And when you study it in the scriptures, it's a phenomenal concept. If you have your Bible, it's on the screen, but if you have your Bible, turn to Matthew 9. And there's this phenomenal passage where it says, when Jesus saw crowds... He had compassion. And he looked at them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were running about. And they were harassed and they were helpless. You look at our country today. And the number of people that are harassed and helpless and running about without direction, it seems to be growing exponentially. It really seems to be. I don't know if it's because we have news that keeps it in our face 24-7, but what this verse is saying is that when Jesus looked at people, he had a visceral gut response. He could not look away from people in need. When Jesus saw a crowd, he did not see nameless faces, but he saw people in need. And I believe this morning that if we don't grasp this visceral response... We will go back to work tomorrow, and we will do the same thing we did last week. We will look at our kids the same way, our neighbors the same way, the people that live next door and across the street. So, Lord, this morning, I pray to you that you, through the power 
of your Holy Spirit will get this concept across. Lord, I know it cannot be my eloquent or inept words that make a difference. It will not be the images that make a difference, the fancy graphics. While I have worked hard to prepare a message, God, I believe with all my heart it's the Holy Spirit that will make the difference. And when people walk out of here today, they will be interested in the people around them. Amen. So, here's what happened to Jesus. It's called fight or flight. I'm a PA. I work in urgent care. I see this every day. I, was, I worked the last two days, and I, was, I had a nurse screaming, Mike, you must get into the room right now. And, man, it hit me like that. We had a child who was traumatized, and I had to get in there fast. And it was like I had to make the decision. I'm either going to stand my ground and fight, or I'm going to run. So I ran into the room. Well, what happens is right on our kidneys are two little glands called adrenal glands. And those adrenal glands, when we're confronted with trauma, with things that hurt our feelings, that make us emotional, we have adrenaline secreted into our bloodstream. And so this is exactly what happened to Jesus when you look at the word compassion. He was having a fight-or-flight response when he looked at people. Now, the fight-or-flight response is blood is suddenly shunted away from your stomach because when you're fighting or flighting, you don't need digestion. Your muscles need to be stronger, so the blood goes to your muscles. It goes to your brain. Interestingly enough, your pupils dilate, which forces you to focus your attention on the object in front of you. Your immune system steps up. Your clotting mechanisms step, step up. In the event that you get hurt, your body can fight bleeding. This is what happened to Jesus when he saw people in need. Here's my question. What is a fight-or-flight response that's happened to you in your life? There's one that I remember, and she's sitting on the front row over here. Her name is Kristen, and Kristen got lost from us at a um, flea market. We lost her for three minutes when she was about three or four years old. The thing that scared me the most is I knew the guy, the vendor at the flea market, because we had been there many times, and when Paul from South Africa got scared, I really felt like my daughter had been kidnapped. What about two weeks ago or three weeks ago in Orlando when little Lane got drug under the water by an alligator? And if you read the accounts of that, they said that his father and his mother both ran into the water, frantically tried to grab him. The father got bit by the gator. And then it said when they realized he was drug under, they were running up and down the beach frantically. That's exactly what happened to Christ. So here's what I did. I asked Kondo if I could create a fight-or-flight response this morning. And here's what I said I wanted to do. I wanted to scare you guys to death. And Kondo said, Mike, you can't do that. There aren't enough paramedics, AEDs in the audience. But I I said, Kondo, we've got to get this concept across. He said, do something else that scares them, but warn them you're going to scare them. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to the three sections. I'm going to randomly pick one person to share your favorite Bible verse from memory. I might ask one of our pastors, Ben, to do it. I might ask a girl over here. But, you know, even as I point at you, your heart's probably picking up in speed, right? Is anybody feeling a little nervous? Raise your hand. Is anybody starting to feel the heart beat a little faster? Yeah, Ben's heart's beating faster. The guy who manages our youth. Well, you know, I just... 
I, I decided that I wasn't going to do that because I didn't want to lose you. But I hope you just began to experience it a little bit. Because if you look at the biblical definition, here's what it is. He was moved with pity to his guts. Every part of his intestinal tract was affected. And it says that the pity produced considerable pain. And that's what happens in fight or flight. You get that pain in your stomach and you have to either run or you have to stand there and fight. Look at the examples of Christ proving that he was a compassionate man. I I put them on the screen for you. I don't have time to go over every one of them, but let's start with the first one, the woman at the well, John chapter 4. Jesus, it says, he had to go through Samaria. Why? Jews did not go through Samaria, but he was responsive to the Father. He gets to a well, it's midday. The disciples go into town to get food and water. He stays. He meets a woman. What What was going on in her life? Five husbands working on the sixth. Or five prostitute relationships working on the sixth. Yet he saw something in her that the disciples did not. In fact, if you read further on, when they came back from getting food, it says they were surprised that Jesus was talking to her. See, they didn't have the fight or flight. They didn't have the gut reaction that Christ did. If you read John 4.39, it says, Many people came to know Christ as a result of her testimony, and the Samaritans asked Jesus the Jew to hang out for two days in their village. You see what happened when Christ saw the potential in an individual? What about the Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, who was on the opposite spectrum of Jesus, comes to Jesus at night. What must I do to be born again to understand this plan, this spiritual plan, this great story? You know when Jesus died, who was one of the guys that came to the grave? Nicodemus. You know what he did? He put doTERRA essential oils on him. Or the other one, living something or another. But here's what he put on him. Myrrh. Google it today. The value estimated to be $150,000 in today's money. The guy's life was changed. He went from being a Pharisee, the group that participated in the death of our Savior, to being the one that goes and was bold in the daytime to anoint his body. Zacchaeus. If you're as old as me, Zacchaeus was a wee little man. A wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. That's that song we used to sing. True. It said he was a tax collector and rich. Short, gets in a tree, he wants to see Jesus. Read the scripture. Luke chapter 19. It says, when Jesus arrived at the spot, he stopped. He looked up, he said, Zacchaeus, I have to go to your house today. I don't understand that. The Son of God says to this horrible dude, i got to go to your house. The end of the story, Zacchaeus gave away half of his possessions that day, and anyone he had ripped off, he repaid them fourfold. If you look at the lepers, ten of them at a distance, it's called Hansen's disease. In those days, it was thought it was spread by touching. We know different today. Bacterial infection would affect the skin, deform the skin, deform the face. People looked awful. They would burn their fingers in the fire because they lost the sensitivity of of peripheral nerves. Ten of them at a distance. All they said was, Jesus, have mercy on us. Didn't ask for food, money, or for healing. Mercy. 
He did. He healed them. And guess what? One of them came back. And just like that woman who was bleeding, who wasn't supposed to touch anybody because of Levitical law, who touched the hem of his garment and was immediately healed, this dude comes back and gets at his feet. He breaks the law to get close to Jesus. If compassion is a part of our life, then hospitality will naturally flow from that. Don't get confused with hospitality only being inviting people into your home. But if you look at the biblical definition, hospitality is inviting strangers and enemies to your home for a meal. It's not your friends and your family. It's people you don't even know. Here's a cool thing we can do today in our church. If you see somebody that you think is new, go up to them and talk to them. Show some compassion and maybe invite them to your house. What the heck? Just add an extra piece of ham, add a little bit extra noodles, whatever. So Kondo asked me, what nuggets would I leave my grandkids? So I met with them this week. I I met with um, Sophia, Colton, and then I met with their friends, Lena and Luca. The average age of these four kids was about five. The oldest is eight, the youngest is five. And I videoed some of it, but it, it wasn't great quality. And I just said, okay, guys, I'm talking to much old people Sunday, and I want to tell them about how to share their faith with Jesus. Well, you're all old compared to them. How would you tell people about Jesus? Here's what they said. Be nice. Share your stuff. If your friend's being bullied, defend them. If they hurt themselves, help them. If you have food and they need food, give them some of your food. This was the best one. They don't have any money, but they said share your money with them. (laughs) So I don't see Colton. Colton was here a second ago. Colton, the other night I came home from work and he goes, Poppy, I got to tell you a story. I shared Jesus today because we had just had the talk. He says, I shared Jesus today. This is the other thing that you got to get out of your brain. Sharing Jesus is not insisting on sharing the four spiritual laws with somebody and telling them they're a sinner and the only way to heaven is through Jesus because there's a process. It's called planting seeds. One person plants, one person waters, but it's God that gives the increase of salvation. I said, well, what'd you do to share Jesus? Little boy at the concession stand didn't have any money. And the guy says to him, hey, kid, no money, no hot dog. He says that to me. So he runs over to Nana because he wants to share his money that he doesn't have. And he says, hey, Nana, this kid needs money. He needs to eat. And so, Poppy, I went and I bought him a hot dog. Hey, that's awesome. That's hospitality because hospitality is being friendly, warm, helpful, kind, and generous. See these two things? If we just do these things, it's amazing. Look at what the Bible says about hospitality. It says that we should not forget to show hospitality to strangers because we might accidentally be showing hospitality to an angel. I'm telling you right now, guys, I lived in Africa. One day I'll share with you some of the experiences that my wife and I had. We are convinced that God was there. Amazing. Peter said we are to show hospitality without grumbling. If you look at Jesus Christ's examples of hospitality, 
I did a, a word search on him last week, just hospitality, eating, breakfast, lunch, just anything that showed he hung out with people. This guy was incredible. And I wrote a few things for you. He was always with family and friends. He was at weddings. He fixed food. He was with people day or night. He would help people after a hard day's work, which we as Americans understand a hard day's work. He camped out a lot. The Bible says foxes have holes, birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't have a house. And this is the other thing I want to tell you. Some of the greatest hospitality events that my wife and I have scheduled were in our first home of 800 square feet. 800 square feet. We used to have that place packed with people. It was the most amazing thing. Jesus was around joy. He was around sorrow. He was around weddings. He was around funerals. Coolest thing, read about Jesus after the resurrection and the three or four appearances he made. One of them, he started a fire and cooked fish on a beach for his disciples. So he practiced compassion. He practiced hospitality. So in order for our co-workers to be the object the object of our hospitality and our compassion, we must have a visceral response when we see people. So the other night, I'm eating at one of my favorite restaurants with one of our favorite couples, and Meyer and I beat him to the restaurant. We're sitting there, and the server comes and gives Meyer and me some water. Well, as our friends showed up, the server showed up. Our friends embraced her warmly, hugged her, called her by name, and a conversation of about two minutes ensues. Our friends sit down and we say, what's that all about? And they begin to tell us that when they come to that restaurant, they ask for her by name. They begin to tell us about the interventions that they have done in her life as they have found out of the needs in her life. And I thought, bam, that's it. This is what I'm talking about Sunday morning. It's they had a visceral response to her needs and they met them. And really, the things they did were quite simple. So Kondo asked us to share some stories. So I'm going to share with you three stories, and I'm still doing okay on time. By the way, is there like a thing that shocks me or buzzes or something? Oh, you you just say quit. Okay. (laughs) I do know it's 1014, and we're okay. So Are you you guys still with me? Okay. Now we're going to tell you some cool stories. So in 1989, my wife and I, along with our two oldest girls, Rachel and Beck, moved to Central Africa. As a little boy and a little girl, independent of each other, Florida, her South Carolina, we had committed our lives to Jesus, and we were impacted by missionaries, and we both had said, unbeknownst to one another, we want to work in Africa. And so we began the process in 89. We ended up heading there for two years. And we first lived in Bogila, which is right on the northern border near the the Sahara Desert. One of the hardest things I've ever done. I grew up in Florida where it's hot. I lived in South Carolina where it's hot. And I moved to Africa where it's hot. And I hate heat. And this place was so hot. But we had a wonderful time there. And then we moved to Yaluke, where our last daughter, Joe was born, where all four of our girls grew up. And we were working there. And our job was primary care. So I'm a PA, Myra's a nurse. And These are my really good buddies on the far right. You know, it's hard to get their faces. When you take pictures of uh, Bunjus and Zovoko, white and black in Africa, it's tough. Either you can't see the white people or can't see the black people, and this was an old slide. So believe it, there is a black guy on the right. His name is Ponce Pierre. He's a general surgeon. There's Torbe Daniel in the middle. And they were my buddies and my co-workers in crime. We worked together every day. 
I learned so much from these guys. It's just unbelievable. So here's a cool story. This is Joe's birth. Joe's sitting here on the front row. She's 20 now. And this happened around 11 o'clock at night. We had a deal with the two guys that we would pay them to stay in the village for a month because I didn't want them leaving Myra's last month because when she goes, she goes. In fact, um, JoJo was one push, pop, she was out, just like that. And I knew that would happen, and I was just playing catch, basically. So, But I knew if we got into trouble, I needed some smart people there. So I said, guys, I'll pay you to stay in the village the entire last month, and here's the special deal. If it's a boy... I will double your salary. Because I had three girls. We didn't do ultrasounds. We had no idea. We had named all four of our girls in utero Caleb. They came out. I never had a Caleb. And so in Africa, you need to have a boy. You know, that's just the thing. Well, interestingly enough, Torbe Daniel in the middle had five girls. So I'm working on fourth. And when little Joe popped out, Meyer and I were ecstatic because she screamed. She was healthy. She looked great. And those old boys just walked away with their head down. It was like, <laughs> this poor guy, he's got him another girl. But we love her a lot. And we really are happy we have four girls. Well, Meyer and I got tired of watching kids die. We would have mothers bring babies to us that were dying of tuberculosis, that were dying of malnutrition, were dying of cerebral malaria, and there were certain things we could do and a lot of things we couldn't. So we decided to work in those the two areas of tuberculosis, which is a bacterial disease which can be eradicated with antibiotics, and malnutrition, which is just giving these kids high-protein food and teaching their parents how to cook good, nutritious, high-protein food. And so the very week that I had been granted to be a part of the French tuberculosis system from the capital... We were given medicines to treat 10 TB patients for one year. This fellow walked to our doorstep. His name was Foxy. Now, why an African kid's name Foxy, I'll never know, but it was Foxy in French. And he came to us, desperate, hungry, sick. But here's the deal, guys. He was one of dozens that I had seen that week. And it would have been easy to not have the visceral response. Because you find as a missionary in the developing world, you become calloused quickly because you don't have enough money and enough food and enough soap to take care of everybody that bangs on your door. But something about Foxy struck our hearts, and we began to feed Foxy. We began to treat him with three antibiotics that you treat for TB. And here's a picture of Foxy 90 days later. Please say, oh... That's phenomenal. You look at that. So Myra had a thing we called chewing gum checkups. And every month, Foxy would have to show up, have to have his three empty bottles, and, would have, and Myra would fill him with his three drugs, and she'd give him some candy and some food. And this went on every single month for a year. He would just come for his checkups. So we came back to the States around 2000, and we lost track of Foxy. And I was in Bangui and headed up to Yaluque in 2009, and this young fellow walks up to me. And he says, um, Baba, Aikemo? Let's see. Go ahead and give me. There you go. Baba, Aikemo? Father, is it you? I said, Foxy, Aikemo, Mokono, you've grown. And it was Foxy. And we began to talk. 
And I learned he was going to the Aluke Grace Brethren Church. He was involved in the corral. He was teaching young boys soccer. And he had become a pharmacist and was working in Yaluke in the market. So as I look at these pictures, day one versus day 90, here's what I would say. Minimal investment, maximal return. Probably maybe 20 cents a day in medicines. Maybe in that year, a couple days of our life were dedicated to him. In that year, a little bit of money for food and clothes. And yet today, Foxy lives not only physically, but he lives spiritually. And I thought, in our country today, how many Foxies are there in our county? In urgent care, I get to see them pretty frequently, actually. There's so many I wish I could reach out to, but just professionally, I can't. People in such desperate need. I had one yesterday. just broke my heart. So remember, God's asking us to make minimal investment in one soul. I'd be amazed at the maximal return we'll see. So let's talk about a story here in the United States. This is a, a picture of my neighborhood. And I encourage you today, when you go home, if you live here, Google kcgov.com and go to Beacon, and it will give you an aerial map of your neighborhood. And all you do is hover over the number, and it will tell you the first and last names of the people that own the property. And if you don't know every single neighbor by name, please know it by tomorrow. Because for Meyer and me... In the United States, that's been one of the coolest things we've been able to do. We know our neighbors by name. We talk to our neighbors. We look out for our neighbors. They look out for us. The UPS box is on the front porch of next door. We get it. We take it home until they come back from their trip. We know some of our neighbors work for Biomet and Zimmer, and they travel a lot. We look out for their house. We know neighbors who are suffering from chronic, debilitating diseases. And that great wife of mine over there fixes food and take it, takes it to them. That's like one of the coolest things that God's allowed us to do by living on a cul-de-sac. We've had cul-de-sac parties. We brought in a Motown group because my wife loves Detroit Motown. For her 50th, we had this humongous party, and this dude sang Motown for about two hours, and all of our neighbors just came and hung out. Coming home from Africa recently, I watched an HBO special called Paycheck to Paycheck. It was a story of a single mom raising three kids in the South. They followed her for a year and a half. Google it and watch it today. Paycheck to paycheck. When I came home, I told Meyer the story. The one thing I remembered is that they asked her, does your husband pay child support? She goes, well, it's $800 a month, but he don't give me nothing. And she said, if he'd just buy me one tank of gas, I'd be happy. And Meyer and I started talking. I said, why can't we start buying a tank of gas for some single women that we know that go to this church? And it began just a little clandestine, quiet little thing that we have on our radar. Women who we know are trying to raise kids on their own and are struggling doing it. The other thing we heard early in our marriage is make your home the focal point of where people want to gather. And so that's allowed us to have exchange students. People from Europe stay with us. We've had some moms stay in our home for extended periods of time. Our first year of marriage, we had a young girl live with us for a year in an apartment with two bedrooms and a bath. 
It's just been something God's kind of put in our heart. When I was a kid growing up, there was the four spiritual laws. And you may remember this image. It says, God's here, man's here. The only way to get to God is through the cross of Jesus Christ. But when I was a kid, people were not postmodern in their thinking. Most people in the 60s and 70s had a worldview that involved God. Folks, we now live in a different world. You look at the way I've redesigned the four spiritual laws. I believe you not only have the spiritual divide where they need Jesus, but you have a cultural divide and multiple barriers. Think of trying to share your faith with a Hindu who has a religion that believes in 32 million gods. Think of our Muslim friends who believe in Allah while we believe in Jehovah. We cannot expect people to be brought into our church when their worldview is so different from you and me. And so we have to go to them, become their friend, and then when they start becoming interested in why we're nice and compassionate, then we talk about Jesus and bringing them into our church. The final story is the greatest story ever. And it's the story of Myra. I didn't want to do this. And it involves our porch. So that's our house in Yaluke, and that's our porch. And Myra was always doing things on that porch. And as I was looking at it, I thought, this is a story of investment Genuine concern and true friendship. And um, if you look at the teaching, Myra would always teach Fulani as well as the Baya. So that was the Christian and the Muslim community. She'd get them together. And in this crowd, there's a mixture of Christian and Muslim. And she was teaching nutrition here. And then we would feed the kids on our back porch with some of our African staff. But um, there was one particular Fulani who was... Just kind of a, a, a wild gal. She was unique. Her name was Zeniba. So let me introduce you to Zeniba. And this is Myra and Zeniba. And the first couple times that Myra and Zeniba were together, I remember sitting on the porch, and I remember two events that happened, just to kind of show you the extreme difference between these two women. One was Myra had just shaved her legs, and she had a little cut on her leg, and I went and sat down. And Zeniba goes, Woo! you bleed when you cut yourself? Myra goes, yes, I bleed just like you when you cut yourself. Well, a few days later, we're sitting there again, and little Joe toddles up. She's around a year whenever she first started walking, and she's hungry. And so Myra begins to feed her. And Zeniba looks at Myra and says, you breastfeed your babies like we do? Where did Joe come from? Did you carry her in your womb? She goes, we always thought that you Boonjus, if you wanted a baby, you go over to that hospital over there and they'll have one for you. I mean, we're talking about worldviews that are so far apart, you're not going to believe it. So, I like to look at a picture and say a picture is worth a thousand words. Look at the contrast in this picture. White, black. There's not a millimeter of space between them. Rich, poor, extremely educated, BSRN, zero formal education, couldn't write, a, couldn't write a letter, couldn't read a word. Here's a positive thing about Zinaba. Myra could not have survived if she was Zinaba. 
on five or ten cents a day, living in an eight by ten hut made out of mud, trying to figure out how to feed two kids and a grandkid, I don't think it would have happened, right? I don't think it would have happened. So we left and came back to the States, and when we came back from the States, Myra didn't see Zenobah for seven years. And I just happened to have my iPhone the minute that Myra and Zenobah met for the first time in seven years after a two- or three-year relationship. And when Zenobah saw her in this picture, she says, is it you or is it just another picture that Monsieur is bringing me from the United States? She literally said that. Is it you? Well, during those years of Myra not being there, I would always go to Yaluka and I would always visit Zenobah and Musa, her husband. And every time I would visit, Zenobah would bring me dinner. This is a picture of dinner. It literally would fit in my hand five times, and it literally was one piece of meat. But she always brought it to me. And Myra and I were talking about why would she do that? And it was the idea that she was trying to show hospitality to the husband of one of her best friends, but I think it was also a thankfulness for the investment that we had made in her life down through those years. We're going to show you a video that lasts about 45 seconds, and this is, uh, I took a group of young people. We were helping a pastor pick peanuts in his garden. He was a Christian pastor. Zenobah wanted to go and help. And the girls and guys are singing a song. And towards the very end, when they get to amazing love, I know it's true. Listen to the background voice that you hear. Go ahead. She was singing in a language she did not know a single word of, but in a language that she understand with her heart. So just prior to Zenobah's death, she was talking to Myra. And so this was the last picture we have of her. And she told uh, Myra, she had a group of 20 Fulani, 20 Fulani women that she was sharing her faith with. In a culture we're talking about, Christianity among an Islamic population is not a very good thing. So as you look at this image, I would encourage you this week to be friendly, to be warm, to be helpful, and to be generous. God's asking us to do big things, and I think we can do them with a very simple formula. And remember, we exist to invite everyone everywhere to life in Christ.